Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. And even though I had so much fun and I had a great community, it wasn't where I felt like I could thrive and live my purpose. And this was a big deal for me because I feel like a lot of people, when I talk to them about their nomad journey, it started out of something kind of trying to move away from something. So whether they were in a job they didn't like or in a community that wasn't uh, really supporting them, I kind of felt like I had an amazing life. And honestly, if I, I still lived it to this day, I probably would be quite content but it was that I knew I could do more. I knew I can contribute more to, to the world. And to do that, I need to get really uncomfortable. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Danielle Thompson. She is a 25-year-old serial entrepreneur and full-time digital nomad. She is the founder of Moku, an agency focused on web and app design for tech startups. Her design work has serviced over 100 million users and has helped founders raise over $19 million in seed and VC funding. She is also the founder of the Freelance Travel Network, an online school that helps nomadic freelancers promote, grow, and profit from their online service business while traveling the world. Danielle has helped individual freelancers 10x their income and land some of the world's top brands as clients. Her mission is to empower 1 million freelancers by teaching creatives the business skills they need to get work that inspires them. She runs all of her businesses remotely and has been traveling the world full-time since 2015. Since then, she has lived in over 20 countries and has amassed 50,000 Instagram followers. Danielle, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Well, I am so excited to have you here just for context of how we met. You and I got connected through our mutual friend, Sean Tierney, who Maverick Show listeners know well. He's been on the show twice. 
And I heard your interview on Sean's Nomad podcast. And I don't even know if the interview was over yet. It's probably somewhere in the middle of me listening to that interview. And I immediately already started texting Sean. And I was like, Sean, you've got to introduce me to Danielle. I just simply need to know this person. <laughs> and so he did. And you and I have been connected now for a few months. And I'm so glad we're able to put this interview together. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's kick this off by talking about your journey to entrepreneurship. Can you just talk a little bit about where you grew up and what your path was like finding your way to entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I was so lucky to have a dad who's an entrepreneur. So my dad was always working and hustling. Um, I didn't know it as a kid, but he was really, really hustling, like, you know, out there trying to make money for the family, trying to make sure that we have an abundant, amazing life. But he was so amazing because even when we didn't have a lot of money, he always made me feel abundant, right? So we'd be in the car and he'd be telling me affirmations and I'd have to repeat them, be like, you know, I feel good. I feel fine. And like, really, really really positive things and kind of got it in my head that, you know, my time is worth a lot and I can do creative and fun things with my time. And so my earliest memories of entrepreneurship is, you know, taking everything that my parents own and then selling it back to them in the house with my little cash register and, you know, classic lemonade stands until I actually was able to make money through one of my arts, which was photography. So that's the first kind of entrepreneurial business that I started where I was a photographer. I take pictures of my friends' families and make, you know, a hundred bucks. And it was super, super exciting. But it evolved pretty quickly from photography into design as I went to design school and then starting to work as, um, as an entrepreneur kind of online a little bit through this guy I was dating. And one day I remember he was in his room and he turns around, I'm doing my homework and he turns around and he's like, Hey, I made a hundred or $200 today or something like that. And I was like, what you were here the whole time. I don't understand how you could have made this money. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, I work online. And he explains to me, shows me everything online. And the first thing I do wasn't actually get a job online, but was outsource my homework. <laughs> I was like, this is great. I, that means I don't have to do work anymore. I outsource my homework to the other side of the world. And then I saw these freelancers, you know, on the other side of the globe making money. And I was like, you know what? maybe I could try and do this. And so I went on the site, it was called Elance at the time. So that's before it was Upwork. And I log on and, I, and you know, I have no portfolio. I have no experience. And I find this young man who has these photos for his online dating website. And he wants to look tanner. He wants his teeth to be whiter and his eyes to be bluer. It's <laughs> 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 like, I can do that. Take my Photoshop skills. <laughs> And to this day, I still hope he's found love. Um, so that was kind of the start. <laughs> That's the start of my entrepreneurial journey. That's amazing. And so how old were you when you first started getting on Elance and putting your services out there and getting paid for things? I guess I would have been around 18, 19. Right. And from there, what was your entrepreneurial trajectory moving forward? Yeah. So it was kind of interesting because so when I discovered Elance and these sites, I, I took it as twofold. So one was to find clients and then the other side was to outsource the work. <laughs> and so I started kind of building a business right off the bat and I didn't know it. I was in school full time. So, you know, there would be months where I was I was I was working a lot. There'd be months I was I had exams. And so I didn't have a consistent business or anything like that. I might have been making like two thousand dollars a month on average uh, during my university time. But it was crazy because I remember 
remember the months I really pushed it and I, I would make kind of what I considered a big income at the time. A lot of my friends who were way better at design, at the creativity stuff than me, would be making a lot less money than me because they were working in jobs that were not aligned with their discipline. So maybe in a pet store or something like that. And it kind of frustrated me. Like it really did frustrate me because I'm like, you guys are so much better than me. You're so much more talented. The way you think is amazing. Yet you don't see that value. At the time, I was kind of annoyed with school because I felt like school made people wait for some kind of validation. You know, when you graduate or after this internship, then you'll be good enough. And that really frustrated me so much so that I built my first actual company. And that company was called Intern. So Intern was connecting students with work online. So exactly what I was doing or like an Upwork today, but just for students. And I went and raised some money. I got funding for that and then realized it was a lot harder to build a company than I thought. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, like, all you got to do is find an investor. You got an idea and you're good to go. But it, <laughs> my naive second year self uh, was very excited and thrilled. And it was, it was a great foundation. I learned a lot, but I realized also that was not the business I wanted to build. I think actually that was such a, a pinnacle point in my entrepreneurial journey because I had an investor and that investor was an amazing human, a beautiful person, but so sad and stressed, right? You know, he had all the money. He, he was living, you know, that, that American dream or Canadian dream, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and he had all the money. He had uh, his family. He had the houses, the cars and all this stuff. And I remember this young person and looking at him and being like, wow, he's still not happy. You know, this is what everyone strives for. And this guy's still not happy. What am I doing? I was sitting in my room doing homework in the, in the day and then at night just working on this company. And I was miserable and I was sad. And, and I was like, why am I doing any of this? You know, what's the purpose? And that was kind of when my business kind of started to transform into more of a lifestyle business. And my happiness became the priority of any work that I do. So what were the lessons you learned from what you initially thought building a business was and what you found out that it actually was? And how did those lessons morph into your next venture? Yeah. So I think I thought, yeah, I thought you had an idea. I thought you needed money behind that idea and the money would kind of fuel the business. And I, I think this still happens to a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, you believe, okay, if you can just get the money, then the business will come to life. But I didn't realize that businesses and, and are so connected to business owners, are so connected to, to your mission, to your passion, to the energy that you can put towards it. And I figured, okay, I can shortcut that, you know, if I just put more money behind it. It doesn't really work. And I wanted to skip a lot of the things that made me feel vulnerable. So validating my business was something I definitely didn't love doing, you know, and I would skip over things. I, I didn't want to go and talk to my target market directly and ask them questions and interview them. And I was so scared to kind of put myself out there. But I realized as today now, as a business owner, I think the only way to kind of see your business thrive is to thrive yourself and to be out there in, in public with your target market. And yeah, so that's, that was a huge, huge lesson. And then the second lesson was kind of like, it's great to be building something. It's, it's amazing, but to make sure that that doesn't overshadow your happiness today. So I feel like sometimes entrepreneurs, we are betting on a future that's better than now. And that is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and so, you know, I learned to kind of bet on today, to bet on now and to bet on my present instead and, and work towards something amazing, but not hope that the future is going to be better than the present because the present is actually pretty awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so then from there... Once you learned those lessons, what was your next move and your next venture? 
Yeah. So it was interesting because I decided to slow down completely. And I, I come from a place of privilege. You know, my parents were able to kind of support me and pay my rent and do things like that. So I didn't have to worry about that. I just needed money for groceries and pocket money and going out. And so I decided to slow down and actually be a student. And um, if any students are listening to this, I feel like there's kind of this pressure, especially now that so many things are being documented. There's like, you know, YouTube, everyone's kind of out building out in public. There's this pressure that you should be doing something huge and big right away. But it was so great when I stopped and I started enjoying kind of being a kid and, and hanging out with my friends. And that actually led me into a really organic path of teaching. So because I wasn't, I didn't want to actually dive into freelancing full time, I posted on this random site called University Tutors. And I said that I can tutor in all these subjects, which I actually wasn't that great in. But I also randomly wrote that I can tutor people with ADHD because I have ADHD. And I did really well with that. So like I always made sure my homework was done. I was, everything was, you know, pretty smooth. And I understood kind of what my mind was doing. And uh, so I put that I could teach people with ADHD. And all of a sudden I got all these inquiries from people a bit older than me, startup founders who needed help actually organizing their life, um, dealing with their thoughts, uh, gaining motivation, consistency. And that just opened up a whole new set of doors and a whole new set of learning. Wow. So from there, what was your trajectory in terms of how that business went and how you eventually ended up founding Moku? Yeah, wow. So the teaching and the ADHD part comes in later when the freelance travel network comes about. But following that trajectory of design and kind of uh, uh, freelancing, I actually got back into freelancing. And I remember, so my business was kind of picking up as I was nearing graduation. And I remember I was so, so nervous to graduate, you know, because like your whole world's about to explode. Everything that you knew to be true is now gone because, you know, you, you have no structure anymore. Right. And that's the scariest thing, even though I was an entrepreneur and I was kind of thriving for that, seemed like I would thrive in that. I was still a bit nervous about having no structure. And um, unfortunately, that around that time when I was graduating, I actually got a concussion. And it was the weirdest blessing because at the time I was, I was going forward and I was pushing forward to make sure, you know, I get as many clients as I can and, and do as much as I can. And, but really running on a hamster wheel. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs might feel like that, like the busy wheel, you know, just sending emails, but there's no consistent strategy. I had no real grounding. And so when I was kind of bedridden and at home, I got to think about, okay, what kind of life do I want to build? And winter was coming and I was like, I don't think I want to be here for the winter. And I swear the universe was listening to me because as soon as I got better, literally like that same day, I get a text from my friend, Eric. He says, Danielle, I have this big project with this nonprofit and I would love you to work on it. We sit down the next day, write up a proposal, and we put three different tiers of pricing. And the top pricing was $15,000. I had never charged $15,000 for anything in my life. And two days later, we get a call that they accepted the proposal at $15,000. And right away, my friend books a ticket to Bali, and I booked my first ticket to Costa Rica. And that's kind of when Moku really started to take off because I was like, all right, <laughs> I can do this. I'm, I'm going to build something beyond myself. Awesome. So how much traveling had you done prior to that? And what was your thought process in terms of getting that flight to Costa Rica? 
Yes, I had done all like very little, only trips with my family or going camping or summer camp, but I hadn't actually, you know, gone international by myself. And I was so scared that I booked a hostel for 30 days, <laughs> like one hostel room for 30 days. Cause I figured like, I was like, I don't know how to get from point A to B. So I'm just going to stay here in this one place. Uh, thankfully, when I got there, they were able to change the reservation. But you know, at the time I was so nervous about going international that I actually was like, I'm going to stay in this one place. But Costa Rica came up because it was the cheapest ticket available. It was like $300 return. And I was like, okay, great. I'll go for a couple of weeks and then I'll come back and see how I like traveling by myself. So that was where I was taking off from. Not very much experience at all. Amazing. And then business-wise, you had just validated your ability to charge $15,000 and have people pay it. So can you talk about what that moment meant for you as an entrepreneur? And then from there, how did you proceed to build out Moku? Yeah, so everything in my life, I have to say, has been quite organic. And that moment was so validating because I didn't really, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel this where you feel like you're an imposter. You're like, you know, someone's going to find out that this wasn't worth it. So let me take the money and run. You know, it's just kind of like this anxiety, especially if you feel it when you're sending a bill, like, you know, when you're sending an invoice that really shows um, that imposter syndrome is present. And I definitely had that. And at that same time, as I got that big contract, I actually got into TopTel. TopTel is a network with the top 3% of online freelancers, or that's how they position themselves. And I was one of the youngest people in their network. And I was looking at the other designers who were there and developers, and they were like world-class, you know, they were working with these crazy big companies. And I was like, how did I get into this network? And so the combination between the charging those higher rates and then getting into this amazing elite network really started giving me a foundation and being like, okay, maybe I can do this. And for a while, Moku was just me <laughs> until maybe about a year later when I went to Argentina. And that is a whole other story. <laughs> so. Well, I definitely want to talk about the travel experiences and the growth through travel. So, okay, you had not done very much independent international travel. There was a lot of trepidation about taking that leap. And then once you got to Costa Rica, how did that initial experience go for you? Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, so first I remember, uh, I met this, uh, this lovely guy called Steve and he was the first person I ever met who worked online. And a lot of digital nomads feel this, you know, if you're working from home and you're working remotely and none of your friends are doing the same thing, it's kind of hard to relate on certain things, you know? And so when I went and met Steve, he was working online as a project manager or something like that. And it was so incredible because I was like, wow, there's other people who are excited about my success, excited when I get a new client. Because in Montreal, where I was living before, I would tell my friends, I'd be like, oh, I got a new client. And they're like, yeah, cool. Another one, Danielle? Don't you have one? I'm like, this it's not how it works, guys. <laughs> and uh, it was such a struggle to try and explain it to people back home. So I go to Costa Rica and I meet Steve and he gives me this idea that, you know, a community of these people would be amazing. You know, he was awesome. But I was like, what? I think there's more of us out here. Imagine I could find more of these people. And again, it's like the universe is listening. I see a Facebook ad for Wi-Fi Tribe at that moment. 
and this like work and travel in Nicaragua, only four hours away from where you are right now. And in, I was in the north of Costa Rica, so it was only four hours by land. And it was like, come live with this group of entrepreneurs who travel the world. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, was my computer listening to me? You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, the synchronicity is just too real. And so I tell Steve, I'm like, Steve, we're going to do this. So we do an interview with the founder of Wi-Fi Tribe, Diego. We both get in and then Steve tells me, Steve tells me he has to go home to Canada for some personal reason. And I was like, heartbroken because I was so scared to travel to Nicaragua by myself, right? So I booked the most expensive bus I could find. <laughs> I was like, the more expensive it is, the safer it is. So I booked this like $100 bus to Nicaragua. And it turns out it was a senior's tour bus. <laughs> oh, it was so funny. So senior's tour bus. So I'm there with all <laughs> all these people <laughs> they're like so where are you going i said well i saw an ad online um for the, this group of people they're like so you've never met them i was like yeah yeah it's fine don't worry about it it's, i saw it, it, it's an ad they're safe now um don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah it was amazing and i just remember kind of going into the village where the house was so we and i'm trying my broken spanish to communicate to the driver i'm like i think we passed it i'm like a key a key i'm like trying to point over and be like i think we passed the house and rocking up to that house that's like it had an infinity pool at the back and it was just looking onto the ocean and i was like oh my goodness i just remember the feeling i was like i made this happen you know this, this is my life this is real and i had to pinch myself because it's just like one of those moments you only dream of you know because if my like traveling felt so inaccessible when i was in canada and then having this group of nomads and entrepreneurs who are excited about my success who are excited about business who are excited about building the lifestyle of their dream i was like whoa i must be the luckiest girl in the world here that's amazing. Yeah, I know a bunch of Wi-Fi tribe people. I've never actually met Diego, but I know Julia Calumet, the other co-founder of Wi-Fi tribe. And I've never actually, as of the recording of this interview, I have not yet done an official paid chapter of Wi-Fi tribe, but I have dropped in on them, visited them. I've been on the Nomad Cruise with a bunch of them. And I've actually done a number of the other work travel programs. Uh, I did Remote Year for 12 months. I did Hacker Paradise for a number of months. And uh, we'll probably officially do Wi-Fi Tribe this coming year. But I, I know a bunch of them have had Wi-Fi Tribe participants on this podcast and everything else. But I would love to hear from you. How was your experience with Wi-Fi Tribe? Yeah, it was incredible. So I think that especially if you're starting off your journey, finding one of these work and travel groups is just kind of this is the biggest blessing because you learn that you're not alone. And so when I was there, I met someone who had a startup and they sold it. And they said, you know, I sold it because I just bought myself a job when I had my startup. And I remember that just stuck with me because for the longest time and, and previously my story, I was saying how my dream was to build this company intern, raise the money and do this whole thing. And, and in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe I'll still go down that path. Maybe I'll still found a big company. But there was kind of this resistance in me about that. And when he said, you know, he just really bought himself a job that he actually didn't buy himself any freedom by building this big company, that kind of gave me more confidence about the path that I'm on. And then I started meeting people who had residual income. That just changed everything. I was like, what? So you, you don't have to work all the time and you still make money. And of course, it took them time to build what they have now. But that opened my mind and I think started the, laying the, the foundation for what is a freelance travel network today. 
But yeah, it was so amazing. I remember thinking when we were in the city together, because we our place was kind of in a private area. And then we went over to the city for a few days to kind of party and hang out. And I just remember being like, I didn't know I could be this happy. Like, I just didn't know this was possible. That's amazing. That's so awesome. I mean, I've had similar experiences when I joined these work travel programs and you just meet such an extraordinary group of people that are choosing to create this lifestyle for themselves and pursue it. I mean, most people in the world, you tell them what you do and they think you're crazy. And here you are surrounding yourself with an entire group of people that are all doing the same thing. And it's just been truly spectacular for me to find all of those different communities. And I've been nomading now full time with no permanent base for over six years. And so now my whole social network in the larger digital nomad ecosystem as a result of participating in all these groups and plugging into all these communities and being part of the alumni networks in particular has just created a situation where no matter what city I go to in the world, I can always find really, really cool, interesting people to hang out with. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. It's sometimes I feel like I'm so blessed. I have so many friends around the world. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that being a digital nomad is lonely, but I think it's quite the opposite. Sometimes there's too many people around. Right. That's a really important observation, though, which is that long term world travel can be very lonely if you don't take the initiative to create that social sustainability pillar. So it can be lonely, but there is now such a significant infrastructure being built by so many different companies that if you are proactive about it, you can absolutely be consistently immersing yourself in these work travel communities and surrounding yourself with a really, really supportive, caring environment of people. Totally, totally. And to your point, like it does take effort, right? And I think that's something important to acknowledge. So whether it's signing up for the program that you don't know who's going to be there and it's kind of scary or, you know, it's joining a co-working space, it takes some kind of effort. But the more you put out and the more you give, the more you receive, especially when it comes to social currency and connection. 100% agreed. So, okay, so you did Nicaragua. And then after you had that experience, what was your next move? What was your takeaway? Then I was like, this is going to be my life now. So I went back to Canada. <laughs> I went back to Canada because I had to graduate, actually. I still hadn't graduated formally. So I had to go do my like convocation. So I went uh, and, and actually graduated. My parents saw me on stage. It was hilarious because the girl who was before me, they're like, I can't remember her name, but like, let's say her name's Melanie. Melanie, you know, like a high 90s, you know, this award, that award, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, and then Danielle. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I graduated and I sold everything. So I went and I, I sold everything in my house. And uh, I was like, I need to leave Montreal. I love this place. But I felt like, you know, if I stayed there, the next five years of my life will look like the last five years. Um, and even though I had so much fun and I had a great community, it wasn't where I felt like I could thrive and live my purpose. And this was a big deal for me because... I feel like a lot of people, when I talk to them about their nomad journey, it started out of something kind of trying to move away from something. So whether they were in a job they didn't like or in a community that wasn't uh, really supporting them, I kind of felt like I had an amazing life. And honestly, if I, I still lived it to this day, I probably would be quite content. But it was that I knew I could do more. I knew I can contribute more to, to the world. And to do that, I need to get really uncomfortable. Wow. 
Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and then what you did to pursue and implement that? Of course. Cost of living in Montreal is quite low. It's like a, the economy is not the strongest, but when you work online, you don't have to really worry about that in that specific area. So I was able to kind of afford the lifestyle I wanted. I had a great community of friends. I had a lot of abundance in my life in every way, you know, socially, financially. My community was great. And so I was very happy and I could see myself staying there. You know, I was like, it doesn't sound painful to be here for five years or to buy a house. I remember I was looking at houses, possibly thinking about buying them and getting a mortgage and all that stuff. And then, I don't know, one day it kind of hit me because I got this text message and, you know, everyone's like, hey, are you going out? It was a Friday night and I had gotten that text message every single Friday night for the last how many years. And I just had this realization. It was this like moment where I felt like I was on the Truman Show or it's Groundhog Day or something like that, where I was like, okay, I've gotten this message before and the next week's going to be the same and the next week's going to be the same. And maybe I'll get slightly bigger clients, maybe... My income will go up a little bit. But if I want to really do something great, I don't know what it's going to be. I need to get really uncomfortable, which means I need to leave this place that I actually love. Wow. So where did you decide to go next? Yeah. So I didn't really know what was going to happen. I booked a ticket to Portugal, but I didn't know kind of um, how, how it would turn out, if I would like it or really anything. I'd never been to Europe. So I was just like, let's try and go to Europe. And I landed there and I just, I remember I came out, I was living in hostels around this time still. And I came out and they're like, there's a McDonald's there. And then you walk up this hill and I get to the McDonald's and I look around and I was like, I've never seen a place so beautiful in my entire life. Like it was the most, I remember just standing in awe. People probably thought I was on something because I was just standing there looking around wide eyed being like, so this is Europe. Okay. Like I could get used to this, you know? And I think that really um, speaks to the thing that sometimes we, even when we're in very amazing situations and amazing, you know, amazing environments, kind of pushing yourself and seeing what else is out there is, is I feel like always a very enriching experience. And so I never thought anywhere could be better than Montreal and who knows if it is, but there are places that fulfill me just as much. And Portugal was definitely one of them. Awesome. Yeah, I have been back to Portugal now at least three times myself. And I agree, Lisbon is just an extraordinary city. And then as you start traveling around Portugal, you go up to Porto, you go to the wine country. It is really one of the most beautiful countries that I have been to as well. I agree 100%. Definitely. So, okay, so you go to Portugal. And then now what was going on with your business journey at this point? Yeah. So I took a break from Moku actually and the Freelance Shell Network and I randomly became a design recruiter. So I was working with TopTel and I was uh, interviewing designers who wanted to be in the network. And uh, this was an amazing experience because I was able to start to talk to some of the best designers in the world. So people who I would definitely not have access to, I was on the phone with and they were interviewing to work at the company where I was working. And even though it was a freelance job, I was still kind of part of that core team. And so I was doing that and interviewing people from my hostel room in, in, in Portugal. It's so funny talking to designers who've built like products that like most of us have used and being in the hostel room kitchen and just muting them when, when, when they talk so they can't hear all the chatter going around and then speaking really, really quickly when I unmuted so they couldn't realize that I was in a hostel. You know? And, and uh, it, was, it was just a, such a funny dynamic. But um, yes, yeah, so I was a recruiter for a little bit. I spent some time in Portugal and Europe, and then I had booked a ticket to Thailand, actually. And at that moment, I actually got a message from Diego from the Wi-Fi tribe saying like, hey, Danielle, you're going to be in Thailand. Actually, we have a house down in Bali. Do you want to come? 
And I was like, ah, that sounds like a great idea. And so finishing up my Europe trip, I went to Spain, I went to Tenerife, you know, and that was really, really cool hiking. And it's just so beautiful, good time to kind of focus and started picking up a few more freelance clients and headed over to Asia for the first time. And I understand that Bali ended up having a pretty big impact on you. Can you talk about what your experience was like in Bali initially and then what the residual impact of it was today? Of course. Yeah. Bali is a really magical place. I think Bali is like a place that it's so beautiful, but also it's a bit tumultuous in the fact that I feel like it depends on your belief, but spiritually, I think it's a very, it's a place that shakes you to see what's stable inside, you know? And I was definitely shaken. Uh, when I got here, I felt kind of nervous and overwhelmed because I had to drive a scooter. I lived really far out and in my head, which today actually isn't far, but when you're new to somewhere, everything seems so far away. But Bali actually showed me what it's like to build a business around the lifestyle you want. Because here in Bali, uh, which is where I'm actually calling in from today, you have people who, you know, are not settling and not building the business just to make an income. You know, there are definitely income driven people here for sure, but you find more often people who are trying to align with their purpose, whatever that is. And so coming to Bali and, you know, I was freelancing, I was doing this freelance work and I was like, wait, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? And I, it really got me to stop and think. And because I didn't have to worry about money too much here in Bali, I was making a good enough income. And then the cost of living is quite low. It gave me space. And so that's also just one tip I want to put out there. If anyone's thinking about, you know, going remote, uh, traveling the world, and they're unsure of what skill they want to monetize, unsure what their purpose is, unsure kind of where they want to go, I would definitely start somewhere with a lower cost of living because it gives you a bigger runway to figure that out without stressing about money. So that's kind of just a one a big tip I tell everyone in my school, like go to Tokyo next year. Just for now, go somewhere where you can get that space. You can feel abundant financially, even if you're not working. I think that's an awesome tip. And yeah, we did not announce where we are actually doing this interview from. So you are currently in Bali and I am actually in Bangkok, Thailand. I just got in yesterday. I spent the last month in Russia. I was in St. Petersburg and then I was in Moscow and then I did the Nomad train, which is taking the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow all the way across Siberia to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, at which point we then went through the Gobi Desert, riding camels and staying in yurts and all of that, which was completely epic. But by the time it was over, I was like, I need urban, I need gritty, I need spicy food. So I was like, Bangkok. And I booked a flight and I got in yesterday. Oh, that's amazing. Bangkok is such a special place, I feel like. That was the first place I touched down in Asia. And just a funny story, I remember I was trying to avoid the jet lag, you know, so I was trying to stay up, but I fell asleep face first, you know, on my bed, woke up at 2 a.m. And I was looking for some food. And so I asked the guy who's running the homestay where I was staying, I said, is there, is there any food around here? And I think he figured I wouldn't eat street food. So he pointed me to the 7-Eleven. But right beside 7-Eleven was this alleyway. And in the alleyway, they had really great smelling food. So I'm like, I'm going to go over there. But it was a super local area I was staying in. It was maybe like 20 minutes outside of the city. And so, you know, none of the menus had any English or anything like that. It didn't even have the picture menu. So I just pointed to something and sat down. I was like, give me this, you know? So they 
they cook up something and I'm eating it and it's really yummy, but it's so spicy, right? And I'm trying to act like it's not because I don't want to show, you know, I don't know if it's disrespectful. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like trying to <laughs> brush off my nose and quiet, you know, and I'm like sniffling, but I'm like trying to play it cool. And the guy just hands me a cup full of ice. He's like, you know, just shaking his head. He just gives me a cup full of ice. And then I look across the table. A local guy is there taking the chilies out. Like, you're not supposed to eat all of them, I think. I don't know. But I was like, oh, man, I didn't have to eat all of these chilies. (laughs) And that was my welcome to Bangkok. That's amazing. I just had a street food dinner last night. And by street food, I feel like people that have never been to Thailand, in terms of the pricing and the quality, it is just outrageous. And everything is extremely fresh. So there's nothing sanitarily compromised. It's basically they have these outdoor makeshift kitchens where they're cooking everything in front of you and then outdoor tables and seating and stuff there. And I had two dinner entrees because they were so good. So the first one was like a seafood stir fry. It was shrimp and squid and rice. And then I ordered another one because it was so good. And the next one I ordered was like a chicken stir fry with rice. And so both of these plates together combined cost me $3 US. I mean, just unbelievable. And the food was so good. I was eating it. I was like, as I was eating the food, I was like, I can't believe how good this is. This is just, I mean, I can't believe how happy this makes me to eat this food because I had not had really good Thai food in so long. And then I asked for the jacket. It comes to a $3 US. I mean, the quality of food and the quality of life in a place like Thailand compared to the cost of living ratio is unparalleled pretty much anywhere else in the world. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. That's $1. And then the massages and then the everything. The oh, Everything's great. Thai massages are life. I'm, I'm sure we can talk about Bangkok forever in Thailand. Um, For sure. Yeah. So, okay. So you were in Bali. And then from there, what was your next move, both in terms of travel, as well as how did these businesses evolve? Yeah. So the story is... There's so many different stops to it, right? And so in Bali, I realized I wanted to actually teach and help people work online. And I think that happens quite often here in Bali because you're like, you feel so grateful to be living this life. And then you know people back home who are just as talented, maybe even more talented than you and can make it happen, but they just don't have the tools. So I decided, okay, I'm going to build the freelance travel network. So what I did as a designer, I built the site first <laughs> before any of the content, any of anything else, I built the site. It was kind of like an Amazon approach, like build the press release first. And then it sat there for, for months until I left Bali a few months later and actually went to Argentina. So that was the start of it, that the seed was planted. And in terms of Moku, I was trying to hire people. So I was trying to kind of start an actual business and start having people on board. But it was really, really hard because I, I wasn't a very good client. And I think sometimes we blame talent. It's like, oh, it's so hard to find good talent. But I just wasn't actually a great client. Like I didn't know how to brief someone. I didn't know how to set good expectations. I wasn't that great at communication. So I wasn't a good client. So I, I wasn't able to actually keep any amazing talent at the time. So that was kind of a struggle. So what did you learn from that? And how did you end up correcting for that? So in Argentina is when the correction happened. Argentina is one of the most amazing places on this earth. Buenos Aires is my second home. And 
I love it so much. I didn't love it when I went there first time, but I love it now. Let's talk about BA before we talk about the business stuff, because I actually have lived in Buenos Aires for about four months now. I also lived in Cordoba for a month, so about five months total in Argentina. But uh, Buenos Aires was actually my first destination that I ever went to when I started nomading. So back in the summer of 2013, when I got rid of all my stuff, sold my car, all that, and left LA on what has now turned into a six plus year nomad journey, Buenos Aires was the first destination. So that is a super significant place in my journey as well. And I would love to hear your impressions about it and how they evolved. Totally. So when I got there, I was like, I don't like this place. Like I got there, I got to my apartment. Uh, I met my roommate. We went to the park. It's supposed to be beautiful, but I was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. It was too busy, too many people. It was a city. It was huge. There was traffic, there was cars. And I was like, this is not Bali. Oh no, I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> you know, I booked this place for three months and this is definitely not Bali. So what am I going to do about it? And I was talking to someone about this recently. And, and I think it's a big thing that happens with nomads is all your external validators of who you are is set, are suddenly gone. And I think Bali is when I kind of start to find an identity. I was like, who is Danielle? You know, what does she love? What is she, what is she interested in? Because for the longest time, I was kind of defined by my work and my school. And so Bali was the first time I kind of sat down and figured out, okay, what matters to me? And it was health. It was, you know, wellness. It was kind of giving back. And then I go to BA and it's all about wine and partying and going out. And, you know, and I, I was like, what did I do? You know, I want to go to CrossFit. I want to still do this, but I need, like, I, I was trying to have a social life. So I was going out till, you know, everyone goes out in Buenos Aires at like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's so significant too. And it's really interesting because a lot of people that haven't experienced that culture or haven't been even to Spain or Italy, which is where a lot of the immigrants in Buenos Aires originally came from. And they brought a lot of those cultural traditions, one of which was a very late night culture. And so in BA, if you go out to a restaurant for dinner at 8 p.m., <laughs> All of the doors will be locked. They do not unlock the doors to the restaurant until 9 p.m. Now, at 9 p.m., the restaurant is going to be completely empty all the way up until about 1030. The prime dinner hour in B.A. is 11 p.m. And dinner in B.A. is a social event. Okay, so dinner takes two hours, has multiple bottles of wine. So prime dinner hour in BA is 11 p.m. until 1 a.m. Then you go to the bars from 1 a.m. till 3 a.m. And then you go to the clubs from 3 a.m. till 7 a.m. Now, I was looking in the guidebook when I was there in BA about the cultural do's and don'ts. And on the cultural don't list, it says, whatever you do, don't be that guy that shows up in the club before 3 a.m. So then I would start telling people about this late night culture in Buenos Aires. And the one question I would get would be, well, when do people work? And I'd be like, you know, I could never really figure that out. <laughs> and so the last time I went back to BA, I was out at a bar at five in the morning on a Tuesday. We had just ordered another round of drinks. People are still coming into the bar at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday 
and I'm there with a bunch of locals. And so I thought I would pose the question to them. And I said, you know, I tell people about this culture you guys have here and I get this question and they want to know when do people work? So how do you respond to that? And uh, my friend, she says, yeah, you know, that's not necessarily our strong suit here, which is kind of why our economy is where it is. But you know what? We have an amazing social life. (laughs) Honestly, honestly. And it's so hard to explain to anyone else who's never been to to BA or been to to those cultures. Because I was always wondering, and I was at a co-working space there. And, you know, I would get there early because I I want to work early, around nine or or sometimes even earlier. And no one is there until lunch. And then everyone just has lunch for like two hours. And then... (laughs) And then they leave like an hour or two later. And they're drinking red wine at lunch, by the way. Two glasses of wine at lunch is pretty standard. So funny. It was, and like a full steak for lunch. So, yeah. So, so you can imagine my culture shock now, right? So, I'm coming from Bali where I'm like, oh, I go to CrossFit at like 4 a.m. and, you know, meditate for 12 hours and then like, you know, do my yoga. And like, I'm like, and then to top it off, I start dating a DJ. <laughs> so I'm definitely going out. You know, we're having a great time. It was amazing. But I was having an identity crisis, honestly. And there was one part of me that loved it, but one part of me that just didn't want to accept it, you know? Because I was like, if I fall into this, if I start enjoying myself fully, you know, who will I be? Because my identity was the girl who goes CrossFit, who's a paleo diet, who's, you know, all these things. And I was like, all of a sudden that's all gone. And now I'm the girl dating a DJ, going out every night, you know, drinking, partying. And and I just, and I was having this crisis and I didn't want to fully accept myself. And it might sound silly. It might sound like, okay, well, Danielle, those are both great people to be like you're, but it was, it was hard for me because like everything, all my habits, all my, all my routines, everything was just gone. And by choice, but I was, I was having struggling to really deal with that. But that actually, ended up being very helpful for my business because I was trying to do so much. I was trying to go across in the morning and then somehow take a nap and then go out and eat work and all this stuff. I, I didn't have time for work, but I, I needed some money. And so what I did is I hired my first person for real. And before I was always scared to pay people the rates that they deserve because I, I didn't trust myself to earn enough to be able to pay them. So I found this lovely man called Ang and he's from Vietnam and he was charging, I think, $25 an hour, which for me was like crazy to pay someone that much because I, I wasn't making that much money. But I was like, you know, I got to invest in Ang. I got to invest in my business. If I want to actually stop working all the time, I need someone to help me. And so I hired him and he's, I still work with him t- to this day. I went to visit him in Vietnam. He had a baby. He bought a condo. Like he is my first employee and one of my greatest friends. And I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, 
without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you to learn more about it, you can just go to the maverickshow.com slash consult. And now back to the episode. Because of Argentina and the crazy schedule and the, and the crazy lifestyle, I modified my whole business. How did you end up reconciling those two different types of lifestyles and your appreciation and enjoyment of them from the point where you initially perceived it to be an identity conflict? How did you work through that and eventually reconcile that? Yeah. So since I was in South America, I was like, it's a great time to do some ayahuasca. So I was like, this is awesome. So I, I fly up to Peru and I was feeling that conflict. And so kind of when I got to Argentina, I booked for three months later to go to an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. And that was really transformative because, you know, I thought the issue was Argentina. I was like, the problem is Buenos Aires. It's the people, you know, obviously, like it's the people, it's the culture. It's, it's not me. Obviously. Like, how could it be my fault? How could, how could I be responsible for my feelings, you know? And, uh, so I, but when I sat with ayahuasca, I definitely had a very rude awakening um, to, to the to the reality that I was creating my own reality, and I was definitely creating my own misery. So, for people who have literally never even heard the term ayahuasca, can you just explain basically what ayahuasca is? And then how you came to learn about it and decide to try it. And then I would love to hear about what your experience was like. Of course. Ayahuasca is a plant um, and it contains DMT. DMT is naturally found in our body, but it basically can make you hallucinate, see a lot of different interesting things. So from the spiritual perspective, you know, they actually from the scientific perspective is really interesting. Basically what they say is it breaks down neuro shortcuts. So if you, um, when you were a kid got bit by a dog and you see a dog again, you might be scared. Even though that dog is not the dog that bit you, that dog could be this cute little puppy, but your brain fires and it's like fear, fear, fear. And you're like, oh my goodness, why? You know, I know this dog's not going to bite me. And what happened in our brain is there's a shortcut that gets built, right? We see dog, we fear, we react to fear. And this happens with us all the time. You know, anytime you've been embarrassed, maybe public speaking, you get a pattern in your brain that shortcuts to the fear or the feeling that you felt when you were embarrassed, right? And over the years, those shortcuts actually build and we have muscles built building up in our brains, or we have these pathways building up in our brains where these shortcuts are almost instant and it's very hard to stop and reflect on them, you know, unless you do a ton of meditation. And so ayahuasca gives you this rare opportunity to break that shortcut and actually evaluate the initial situation that caused the trauma. So that dog bite or public speaking with the insight you have now as an adult, right? So it's really powerful. And uh, from a spiritual perspective, they say it connects you to Mother Earth. So Ayahuasca Pachamama, she's the ruler of the, the natural world. And they say that she's really invested in us and our journey on Earth and to make sure that we are the best humans that we can be. And so how I found out about it was a friend told me in, in Montreal, he's like, I did Ayahuasca. And I remember when I met up with this friend, he just seemed different. I don't know what it was about him, but he had this like lightness about him. And he told me about it and I looked into it and nothing ever aligned. So, you know, there was a shaman who would come to Montreal and it was always, always, I was missing this person by a few days, nothing would ever align. And so I kind of let it put, I put it on the back burner. When I went to Argentina, I felt a strong calling to, to go 
to the Amazon and do some ayahuasca. And uh, so then I booked the ticket. And after like, that was a start of a spiritual journey that I, a train going full speed that I couldn't stop. Wow. Well, I know that you have done it now more than one time. So I would love to hear a little bit about those experiences and learn a little bit about that journey. Totally. So I've sat with ayahuasca, I think eight or seven times, something like that. So it's not pleasant. It's not recreational. <laughs> it's a, it's a very unpleasant kind of uh, experience, especially physically in terms of you, you might purge. So things might come up like actually, and it's not necessarily comfortable, but it's definitely, I would say, if you feel called to it, to explore it and, and do the research yourself to see if it's for you. But when I sat with ayahuasca, I didn't know what to expect. And the first journey was, it, it was like, it just kind of felt like I was on every drug at the same time. You know, I was just seeing flashing images and colors and my parents and I was scared. I was in their bed and all this stuff was happening so quickly. And it was only the second and third journey where I started to kind of get some clarity and some clear messages. And uh, what happened in those first three ceremonies, which was the first set I did, and it was in a week, was I actually went back into my past and I relived every trauma that I've ever had. So issues with my family, issues with my self-appearance, my body, all these things, I could see them so vividly. And I was able to reevaluate them with a bit of the insight I have today to be like, that person didn't mean to hurt you. You know, that situation, you're holding onto it because you saw it through a child's eyes, but look at it through an adult's eyes. What you think is there is not actually there. And so it was very powerful in that way. And it opened up these kind of these spaces that I, I didn't realize were there. You know, there were things about abandonment. There was things, you know, just, just deep, deep fears that I had no idea existed. And it was crazy because I realized I had been sleepwalking almost for the last, you know, how many years. And the craziest thing was after that first joint journey, I went home for Christmas because it was in December I did it. And I went to talk to my mom about things and stuff. And I was... She usually asked me, you know, where I'm going next. And, and for some reason, I would always get frustrated when she asked me, is it safe? You know, I don't know why this question would frustrate me, but I'd be like, mom, of course, like I'm going to like Sinai Peninsula. It's fine. Like, you know, and she'd be like, you know, asking, Hey, is, is this place safe? Is this place safe? And, um, it used to frustrate me and I used to get very aggressive about that. And I, she asked me the same question. I can't remember where I said I was going. I think it was in Egypt, actually. And she's like, is it safe? And I could feel in my brain where I used to go. Like I could feel the pathway that I used to take where I used to react aggressively. And I chose not to go there. And it was the most empowering feeling I had ever felt. I was like, wow, I don't have to be a victim of my reactions anymore. Wow. So as you continued to do it, how did your journey evolve? Yeah. So I did it the next year. And then this year I did a boga, which is another plant medicine. And so the next year I thought basically I would feel this after ayahuasca, I had this kind of pain in my heart and I thought I was really intuitive. So I thought I could, you know, feel people's feelings. Like if you were sad, I would feel the pain in my heart. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so intuitive. But years later to find out that that was a mirror. And actually I was in pain for a couple of years and I didn't know it. And being in pain doesn't mean every day I was sad. I was, I was quite happy most of the time, but there were these wounds that were healing inside of me from my childhood, from my upbringing, from all these things. And I had a 
quite a happy childhood, generally speaking. But, you know, we all have these imprints on us that, that we might not know are even there because we saw things through a child's eyes rather than the insight we have today. So the second set of ayahuasca journeys was really powerful. So that was actually in the Amazon. The first set I did in the mountains because I was kind of scared. I was like, the last thing I need when I'm like on ayahuasca is a tarantula crawling up my leg. And like that was just my only image. I was like, I'm not ready for the Amazon yet. And so the next year I felt like, okay, I'm ready for the Amazon. So I went up to the Amazon and um, it was just the most incredible journey. And Ayahuasca started training me. She starts showing me, you know, the freelance travel network. And she says, you know, this is your purpose. And this school is not a school for freelancers. It's a school for human betterment. And she tells me that I'm a healer and I'm sent to save the world from pain. And she, she shows me that, you know, like that the first step to helping anyone is loving myself. And that journey was so transformative because it was the first time I think I really explored self-love. And I, the first time I realized that I was lacking it, you know, especially as an entrepreneur, there's this persona of confidence that I think a lot of us have. And sometimes it's, it's not deeply rooted in much. And I didn't even realize that was true for me until these ayahuasca journeys where I realized, wow, Danielle, there's a lot of love that, that you're missing here. There's a lot, you know, that, that doesn't exist. And, and so after that set of ayahuasca journeys, I went back to Argentina. So this is my second time back in Argentina now. And that's when I started to fall in love with the place because I started to fall in love with myself. Wow. Can you talk a little bit more about self-love and what your realization was, how you began implementing that, and then any tips you may have for other people to implement more self-love in their own lives? Of course, of course. So basically, I went back to Argentina. And one thing I love about Argentina is the dynamics between men and women. For better or for worse, I think it's a very interesting dynamic. And I had realized that I had, because I was, you know, building this business, I was in this very aggressive, masculine energy, you know, and I was like, always kind of pushing forward, 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 that I never got time to actually slow down and appreciate my feminine side of myself. And maybe other female entrepreneurs might um, resonate with this. And Argentina, I think, is a great place for women to explore their feminine side and for men to explore their masculine side. And so when I was in Argentina, I started, you know, listening to more female musicians. You know, it seems so simple. Listening to female musicians, looking in the mirror, dressing a bit differently than I normally dress and kind of finding other sides of myself. But the biggest thing that helped with self-love is one, I made a commitment to it. So after that set of ayahuasca journeys, I said, you know, I'm committing to working on self-love. Like this is going to be my main focus now going forward. And the biggest thing that stops you from self-love is judgment. And so... (laughs) One thing I had to become very aware of is my thoughts and when I was judging other people because I realized every judgment I had was really kind of a mirror. And it's, it's great to use your judgment to actually observe what you're thinking about yourself. And so what I would do is anytime I heard a judgmental thought, I would just say, Danielle, relax. Like, just, you know, like just relax. Like, you know, uh, you know, who are you to judge that person on their appearance, on their job, on their demeanor, on what they said? And that was kind of the start of this huge transformation that continued into Bali, which is this kind of round of being in Bali now. And so what was the rest of that transformation? How did the personal development journey evolve from there? Definitely. So 
I'm almost lost for words when I think of it because I'm so grateful to to go through it. And if anyone, yeah, is feeling a lack of self-love, if anyone is kind of feeling like, you know, that they're judging a lot and, and they're in that space to kind of just take a second to step back. And that's what I did when I came back to Bali. And I was like, okay, what's lacking? You know, what are these thoughts that I have about myself that that are limiting me? And by this time I had started the freelance travel network. I had a few students in the, the course and stuff, but I kind of felt like I, something was holding me back, you know, and same with my studio, something was holding me back from fully giving myself to either of my companies. It felt like I knew exactly what I needed to do, but I just couldn't move forward. It was almost like I was, I was, I was running, but someone was pulling me back at the same time to realize that that person who was pulling me back was me. Sometimes just showing up to the practice showing up to the space where you're trying to improve is, is half the work. So when I made a commitment to self-love, that was half the work. When I came to Bali to explore self-love, that was half the work and everything else started kind of evolving. So one was the big thing on like no judgment, no judgment, like really embrace people with love. And then after that, it was, you know, I did some workshops. I got to explore my body through yoga, through meditation, through fitness, and just starting to fall in love with myself by finding things that bring me joy, that make me happy outside of my work, you know, outside of those things, and then starting to actively look for the beauty in other people. You know, really like when you look at someone, whether you're in a cafe, you're driving, that person cuts you off, like try and say something positive about them. It might feel kind of fake at first, but eventually it starts becoming real. And eventually your eyes start to adjust and you start to see people as the beautiful divine creatures that they are. And it's been amazing because lately what's been happening is like, I know where I used to have judgment, you know, whether it be on body image, it'd be on status, it would be on personality. And I, I can see spaces where I used to judge people. So, you know, someone's walking up to me and I can feel this judgment thought kind of boiling up almost. And then it just gets replaced by something so beautiful, genuine and loving. And it's been the most incredible, incredible journey. But yeah, again, anyone who's in that space, the first thing is making the commitment to show up, to actually look in those dark places, to see why there's these limiting thoughts, to see what, you know, what you're not loving about yourself. Because if you don't know what's in the darkness, you can't really bring it into the light. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit more about the freelance travel network. And coming out of that ayahuasca experience in particular, when you had a dramatically expanded vision of what it could be or was meant to be or what you could do with it, can you talk a little bit about then how did you go about building the freelance travel network from there? And maybe just start by saying what exactly the freelance travel network is today, what it offers, who it's for, and then the journey of getting there. Of course. Yes. Yeah. So the Freelance Travel Network is an online school that helps creative freelancers communicate their value and find better clients. So... Oftentimes I was talking to creatives and the biggest thing is, you know, what should I charge? How do I find clients? And I had this realization that, you know, it was about seeing your value first as a person, as a human, as an individual, it was falling in love with yourself and then seeing that reflective in the marketplace. And it seems far-fetched when I came up with this idea because I'm like, okay, no, Danielle, no one's going to care about that. It's all about the practical tips and tricks. And there is so much practical, you know, how to generate leads, how to cold email, all these things, but it doesn't matter how many of those tools I give you. If you don't believe you're worthy of success, 
you, you can't get there, you know? So it's that kind of bridge between, you know, the practical business side of things and then mindfulness and spirituality and self-love and then that side of things. And it's that merging right in the middle that allows you to realize what limiting beliefs you have that are holding you back. And then here are the exact tools uh, once we get through these limiting beliefs to actually get to you to where you want to be. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit more about who exactly the Freelance Travel Network is for? Yeah, of course. So the Freelance Travel Network is for any creative freelancer. So whether you are a writer, you are a marketer, you're a developer, you're a designer, the Freelance Travel Network is for you. It's the skill behind the skill. So you already have your skill that you go out and monetize, but the skill behind the skill is the business, you know, how to actually run it as a business. And so the course is for solopreneurs who are kind of struggling, you know, whether you're kind of at a lower income level and you're struggling to get those first few clients or you're at a higher income level where you're struggling to systematize it and feel confident in building a system to actually get clients on demand. And so if you're in any of those two spaces, the Freelance Travel Network is amazing, amazing, amazing resource for you. You can check out freelancetravelnetwork.com, even just read the blog post. There's so much good content on there. Um, and I'm very, very excited about it. And so it came out of, yeah, a desire when I was in school. And I told you earlier that I would see my friends who were way better than me, you know, who, who were earning so much less. And earning money is not even the main thing about it. The money comes after you realize your value. And so I had these students that I was in school with who didn't see their value and so settled for something so much less. And so the Freelance Travel Network tries to rewrite those stories and let, lets you see your value so you can actually earn the rate you deserve. You know, you can get clients who respect you and work that just really fires you up. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit more about behind the scenes, about how you built and scaled both of your businesses, Moku and the Freelance Travel Network? And any tips that you may have for people in terms of building and scaling businesses remotely? Of course. Yeah. So this actually came after my last plant medicine ceremony, which was a boga. So a boga is this African plant and it's ayahuasca. If you imagine ayahuasca, she's just like this warm, beautiful, like goddess who's like, Hey, everything's going to be okay. And a boga is the stern father, right? So he comes to you and he's like, what are you doing with your life? You need to show up more, you know? And, uh, it was a very interesting experience that really shaped the, where my businesses are today. So this is fairly recently. And, so I sit with Boga and I see this spirit, this, this African man come to me and he's like, Danielle, you're not showing up for your life. You know, it's great that you're in flow. It's beautiful that these things have happened. And you'll hear that in my story. Like one thing kind of just happens after another. It's pretty flowy. I put in work, I put in effort, but there wasn't really that much intention or goals when, when I was moving forward. And he's like, every time you don't show up, Danielle, someone else gets hurt. And I was like, what do you, what, what does that mean? And he's like, you know, when you don't show up fully to the freelance travel network, when you're not working on that, when you're not trying to reach people, you know, someone out there is not getting, you know, the insights that you have and you're not sharing your gift or when you're not showing up for Moku, you know, your employees suffer, you know, that you're not helping them build their future. So you need to show up to your life. You need to show up to your business. And I was like, oh man. And it was like, you know, you're scared to hire the people you know you need to hire because you're scared that you can't make enough money. You're scared that you won't be abundant enough. And you need to actually, you need to do that. You need to show up. And I was like, okay, all right. That's a <laughs> good morning. You know, like, I was like <laughs> um, yeah. And um, this plan also shows you that I think, well, one of the takeaways I got from it is in life, we're often waiting for this boom. 
Okay. So we're like, maybe when I meet the girl or the guy, there's going to be this boom. There's going to be this firework. Maybe when I get that job, it's going to be a boom. Maybe when I hit this income level, it's going to be a boom. And you get there and there's no boom. You know, I told myself when I make 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a month, boom, it's going to feel different. It's going to boom. My life is going to change, but there is no boom. There's no boom. But what you realize when it's not a sad realization because it's actually so beautiful. When you realize there's no big boom, you realize that everything around you all the time is booming. Everything in your life is, is vibrating and has an energy. It's just, you weren't present to it because you were betting on a future. And so I kind of realized that I'm living in the dream right now. Like this is the miracle. This is what's beautiful about life. And so when I came home from that ceremony, everything kind of changed. And so I looked at Moku and I knew who I needed to hire. I was way too active in my business, doing sales, doing client management. I was doing all this stuff. I have ADHD. I am not the most organized person in the whole world. I'm fairly organized, but like that's not my strength. And there's someone who can do it better. And so I hired Carrie, who's our business manager today, who's been incredible building systems and processes so I can start leaving that first company. And then the freelance travel network, running ads, it's not my specialty, you know, uh, and I hired the people to do that. I hired people to take over the SEO, to run ads, to do all of those things. And so all all I need to focus on today is content and creating things of value for you guys, you know, for the listeners, for people who are watching my YouTube channel, looking at my Instagram, uh, creating content and value and sharing my message and sharing my gifts. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about your social media presence. You have somewhere around 50,000 followers on Instagram. You're now active on YouTube as well. Can you talk a little bit about any tips that you have for building a social media audience and presence? For sure, for sure. So there's kind of two tips. So the first one kind of goes with the last story when I hired all these people. And if you're looking to scale your business, you need to find the right talent. You know, you're, you can't do it all. And I think some of us have issues with letting go. And I think that also applies with social media. You know, I have someone to help me with YouTube SEO because that's not my specialty. I have people to help me with not so much with Instagram these days, but with LinkedIn and some of my other social medias, which are doing really well. And if you're looking to build a following, I think on Instagram specifically, and even on YouTube as well, I think the greatest currency is authenticity. And people are looking to connect. And so, you know, we did an experiment with some of my friends where they took a photo and they tried two different captions. So they would try one that was kind of like cool and trendy and like very minimal. And then they would try a heartfelt caption that talked about what they're doing now, how they feel and their thoughts around that. And some of us don't feel like our thoughts are super valuable or they're worth listening to. But honestly, I can see the difference when I put a caption that talks about what's really going on in my life. I get so many more likes and replies and it's way better to build, I think now my following's big, but for a long time it was it was you know under 10k and I had a very tight knit group of people who really liked hearing what I had to say. And I think it's better to build that as a foundation than to just go after likes and using all, a billion hashtags and things like that to try and build real fans. Awesome. And what kind of content are you putting out on YouTube? If people were to subscribe to your YouTube channel, what kind of content could they expect there? Yeah. So my channel is called Hey Danielle, all one word. And it is about freelancing and kind of like that intersection between freelancing and mindfulness. And then a lot of practical tips and a lot of reframing kind of like, you know, from scarcity to abundance, kind of uh, your own value and things like that. 
Awesome. I want to ask you a little bit about your personal productivity habits and day structure and routines. I know you've talked a lot about your personal development journey. And so today, how do you structure your day? Do you have morning routines? Do you have evening routines? How do you structure your day to be mindful and also productive? Totally. So first off, gamify everything. So I gamify everything. I have this app called Habitica. Habitica turns your life into an RPG. So you can set points for doing your habits. You have dailies, you have to-dos. So that's one of the ways I keep on track with everything because I want to get points and you set your own rewards. So if I do like, you know, 200 points, I can shop on Amazon or something like that, you know, and get someone to bring it for me. So I I assign rewards uh, for actual actions I do in my everyday life. So this makes it kind of a a fun way uh, to stay on track. But in terms of my day structure, so in the morning, I like to do some kind of fitness. So either going to gymnastics or doing yoga in the morning for 30 minutes to an hour, depending if I go to a class or if I do it at home. And then I have two, I start usually around nine for the workday and I have two blocks every day of flow time. And Monday and Tuesday, I work on the studio. And then Wednesday and Thursday, I work on the freelance travel network primarily during those flow times. So Monday and Tuesday, it's mainly on the studio. And then I have one hour for the freelance travel network. And then Wednesday and Thursday, it's inverse. So I have most of my time on the freelance travel network and one hour for the studio. And this is really great to have dedicated flow time because I don't book any meetings or anything in those times. And it's just for me to focus. I track my productivity using an app called Rescue Time. It's actually free if you want, or you can pay for it. But I've seen my productivity over years. I can see my productivity per location. And I get about four hours and 30 minutes of productive time per day on average. So I don't schedule any more than five hours of work each day. Because after that, I find I'm not very productive. And then Fridays are flow days. So if I feel like working, I'll work on Friday. If I don't feel like working, I don't work. But I let Fridays come kind of organically because I find a lot of serendipity happens on Fridays. So I leave that kind of open. And then uh, the last thing is batching calls. So I only will do calls Mondays and Tuesdays. And that keeps my brain kind of free to to do other things. And uh, I go to the gym in the evening as well around 4.30 or 5.30, do a sauna, have dinner, and try and get to bed by 11. Awesome. And do you have any other mindfulness practices specifically that you use in your life regularly? Definitely. So I journal every day. So it's one of the things that give me points in my app. Um, So I journal every day and I have the five minute journal as well as um, I actually just journal on my iPad and write a bit about that day. And at the end of the week, I try and do like a weekly review. And meditation, yes, I would say my practice is a little weak, but I have the Muse headband, which tracks your brain waves. So I'm able to actually see kind of like how my brain's actually doing when I'm meditating. And then if I'm feeling kind of uh, lazy, I'll do a headspace. All right. So I want to shift gears one more time and talk to you about your travel structure currently and how you're currently designing your lifestyle. Yeah. So kind of, um, I'm like almost... I'm almost an ex-nomad in the way that I have a year lease here in Bali uh, until next April. And so uh, that's six more months. And so, yeah, I'm kind of based here and I do some visa runs, go to visit my parents, all that stuff. But uh, I'm more based in one place and I realize Bali just lights me up and it's a really great place to be in. And so I think I'm going to actually sign another lease next year as well and kind of have Bali be my home base. I have a bank account here. You know, I have a business visa now, but I plan to do a few more trips in between. So I still want to go back to Buenos Aires for maybe two months of the year. And um, I'm thinking kind of 
eight months here and then the rest of the year traveling. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm structuring it for now. Cool. And let me just ask you this as a macro level question, looking back on all the travel that you've done over the last four years and looking forward as you plan your next upcoming trips. At this point in your life, what does travel mean to you? What do you get out of it? Why do you travel? What does travel mean to you? Travel is like the reset I never knew I needed, you know, no matter where I go, whether it's just to Singapore, which is next door here from here, or it's back home to my parents. Every time I leave where I am, again, everything around you changes, right? Whether it's a gym you go to, the kind of food you eat, the people, the language, everything just suddenly changes. And I feel like finding myself anew in each place helps me understand what my essence is and then helps me relate to other people better. And so for me, traveling is like a big reset button. If you imagine just like a giant red button, this is a reset. You get to, every time you get on a plane, you kind of press it and you get to find yourself as this new person wherever you decide to go. So awesome. All right, Danielle, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Ah, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has most influenced you over the years that you would recommend people check out? I think uh, The Four Agreements. It's by Don Miguel Rios, I think how you spell his name. And uh, yeah, it's about kind of the four agreements that you can make to live uh, a really great, peaceful and happy life. And it's so short. So if you're not into reading long books, it's the perfect book for you, but it absolutely impacted my life so significantly. Awesome. We're going to link that up in the show notes, along with everything else that we have talked about in this episode. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com and just go to the show notes for this episode. And everything that Danielle recommends will be right there in one place. All right. Next question. What is one app or productivity tool that you would recommend? Sunsama, S-U-N-S-A-M-A, Sunsama. It is an incredible tool. It's like Trello and Google Calendar had a baby and you can actually take your tasks for the day and block off time in your calendar with that task. So it's like, instead of just having a long to-do list, you know when you're going to do that task. You can assign time for it and stuff like that. It's amazing. Cool. What is one travel hack that you use that you could share with people? Mm, I love sitting in the back of the plane because a lot of times they don't fill it all the way up. So there's a higher chance of me getting at least two seats to myself. And then I order a gluten-free meal because it always comes first. Amazing. <laughs> that's a good one. All right. Who is one person that's currently alive today who you've never met that you would most like to have dinner with? Uh, Richard Branson. Def definitely. He's just like, he's definitely not of this world, you know, able to completely bend reality and to just get a second to, to, to understand how he thinks would be such a privilege. Awesome. All right, Danielle, what are the top three travel destinations that you've ever been to, your three favorites that you'd most recommend people check out? Ooh, I think Lisbon, definitely. We both talked about our love for Lisbon. It's such an incredible, vibrant city and the food's great. And then I'd say, well, Bali or Buenos Aires. Bali is, if you're looking for something kind of a bit more relaxing, maybe spiritual, uh, entrepreneur vibes, Buenos Aires, if you just want to have a great time. 
And then last question, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been that are the top of your list you most want to go right now? Yes. I really want to go to Zanzibar. Like the beaches look incredible and culture. Like I want to go to Africa in general. Um, so Zanzibar is up there and then Cape Town is, is also up there. So kind of all on the same continent. And then Tahiti is a place I would like to visit. Uh, it just looks absolutely beautiful. Great picks. Yeah. I was in Cape Town for a couple months earlier this year. That was my second time there. It's a super amazing city. And then I was in Zanzibar last year. I did East Africa. I went to Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, which included the trip out to Zanzibar. So awesome, awesome picks. And feel free to hit me up if you want any tips on those. Oh, I definitely will take you up on that. Amazing. Danielle, it was so awesome to have you on the show. I want you to let people know how they can find you, follow you, get a hold of you, learn more about the Freelance Travel Network, check out your YouTube channel, follow you on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. If you want to keep up with me, I post a lot of stories on Instagram and my Instagram is Danielle Tom. So Danielle and T-O-M. And then also I just check out the freelance travel network.com. And there's so many blog posts. There's so much really, really good information about freelancing, working for yourself, working online. So that would be how I would recommend to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, it was so great to have you here. I am most likely going to be swinging through Bali next month. So Hopefully we can grab a drink in person and continue the conversation. I might be in Bangkok, actually. What? Well, we got to coordinate schedules and share dates and hang out either in Bangkok or in Bali. But either way, I look forward to it. And thank you again so much for being here. This was really a blast. Amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.